This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Hello there. Welcome once again to Life Elsewhere. I'm Norman B. Coming up, Robin Chutkin, MD, will explain how to tackle pathogens from the inside out. Now, she's the author of The Antiviral Gut. And we're also going to talk about chocolate orange mousse made with avocados. First, my guest is Benoit Kampmark. He's a senior lecturer at RMIT University in Melbourne. He writes for Counterpunch and other magazines that you really should check out. Plus, he's a frequent contributor to Life Elsewhere. Benoit Kampmark, welcome back to Life Elsewhere. Pleasure being with you, Norman, as always. Okay, as we've done recently, I've selected six topics for you, and we're going to sort of do a a, a quick run-through, get your opinion on some of the things that I've thought we should talk about. I think we should start with what has happened just over the weekend here in America, in Colorado Springs, at the LGBTQ nightclub, a shooting, yet another hate crime. And my question to you, Benoit, is the hate crime syndrome, where does the blame lie? Well, it's it's one of these old problems, Norman. The, uh, is it the symptom? Is it the mechanism by which uh, that particular symptom uh, manifests itself? In this particular case here, the uh, the authorities are still trying to work out, <clears throat> you know, the formalize the charges. And it does seem to have uh, very notable overtones of being um, an alleged hate crime, certainly. Um, but again, we're back to the issue about uh, what was the state and the frame of mind of the individual, the suspect. Should that individual have had access to assault rifles, the AR-15, which he did have? And why, for example, was he permitted to still retain his weaponry when in 2021 he was arrested um, after actually complaints made by his mother, who was threatened, allegedly threatened by him, um, by actually a, a bomb that he was threatening to detonate. And the question was, why, um, when the police arrested him, did they not scour through and claim, claim this individual to be sufficiently fit to have these weapons? So there Various questions linked into this particular very dark chapter, yet another dark chapter of shootings in U.S. Um, history. Just before you and I started talking, I was listening to an interview on MSNBC, and the guest said it wasn't a handgun, it was an AR-15. And the way the guest said this, the way it came across to me was, oh, it's not... It wouldn't be a so bad if it was a handgun. With an AR-15, that's really bad because that's a weapon of war. Well, my my question, of course, and, and I think we've talked about this before, is why do you need a handgun? What what in the world is wrong here in America that the Second Amendment remains firmly in place? Can America ever come to terms with the real problem of guns, Benoit? Well, it's very hard to see how that's possible, Norman. And I think the reason for that is is that it's so enshrined in, in a constitutional identity. It's also a, an affirmation, a sovereign affirmation, if you like. It's symbolic uh, that um, you know in the United States one can have these weapons of however absurd strength they might be, and it's whatever small measure of independence, if you want to call it that an individual might have from the central government or the authorities, the gun becomes very much the reflection of that independence, if you want to put it that way. Um, so it's infused with all this symbolism. And if you think about the weapons, you know, when you think that there's something like 120 guns roughly to every 100 residents in the US, that's a staggering statistic. Yeah. Of course, with many, many families also having multiple guns and so on. So dealing with that and the whole, of course, terrible interpretations being put on the Second Amendment, um, you know, essentially incorporating a guerrilla, urban guerrilla warfare style interpretation into the U.S. landscape. You know, we've got the situation where it's hard to imagine guns ever not being part of it. Uh, we've had a decision this year, for example, handed down by the US Supreme Court, overturning a, a many decades old rule in New York, 
uh, the Bruin case actually dealing, you know, and that particular rule was requiring individuals to have a license to carry concealed weapons in public places. So that was just the license to contain, contain um, concealed weapons in public yes. places, but that was deemed unconstitutional. As a result, seven other states were affected by this. And then, a, you know, there was such a sense of panic that the Biden administration passed the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act uh, bill in response to this. But the, the problem is there. The idea is not, not just is it fetishized, but it's also given legal standing of such note. And certainly, you know, with the gun lobby the way it is, it's one of the richest gun lobbies um, ever. Um, you, you know, even with the National Rifle Association being plagued by administration problems and finance. Yeah. Ironically enough, gun lobbying finance is, uh, always outspends uh, gun control finance, which is a very striking feature of this too. Yes, it absolutely is, Bernoy. Thank you for that. But just one other thing that always concerns me is that the statistics regarding people defending themselves with a gun, be it a any kind of weapon, a, 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 a gun-type weapon, the statistics prove that it's so rare. People almost never, ever protect themselves with a gun. It just, it just does not happen. It's never, it's never in the news. The, the, the reporting is never, never focuses on that. And I always wonder why. Well, it's it's this myth, um, I think, that uh, has been generated over the decades that the gun is a symbol of defense, not offense, that yes. you have it as a protective device, you know, to protect your home and hearth. You know, it's sort of almost a frontier mentality. You need yes. guns to protect yourself against the, uh, uh, the vicious engine just around the corner. Uh, God knows what that vicious native is going to do to your property. So there's a very strange sort of underlying sentiment at play there i think a frontier mentality almost that's been brought into cities and operates like that you know but it's this false uh, um point and, and you will see this play out again in response to this latest shooting in colorado springs there will be of course calls for regulation banning and so on weapons uh restrictions on owning weapons and so on but then the nra and then the, a good number of lawmakers and the Hill will then say, well, actually, what you need to do with these situations is arm everybody. So how you cope with a situation like that is you bring in more security guards, you bring in more police, and you arm everybody. So if only those people at the club had been heavily armed, then this bad person would never have had the effect that he did. Except in this case, it was an unarmed man, an ex-military man, that took the perpetrator down which and helped by... Uh, somebody else, but, but we could go on. I mean, we, you, you and I have talked about this before, but it's. I think it's something that we have to talk about, particularly when it comes up in the news. Let's uh, change. Think, uh, and just, uh, just to say, just yeah. quickly, and you're absolutely yeah. right. It's a nice demonstration about the fact that there were some very uh, brave individuals you know, who managed to minimize or, or you know lessen the terrible yes. situation there and do it swiftly because these things happen very quickly in a matter of minutes and the yes. fact that uh, he, the gunman was restrained is certainly a testament to the fact that these things can happen so that was certainly notable in this case. Benoit Kampmark is my guest let's move on to something which is so troubling it's so disturbing yet it continues on and I I'm concerned that we're not as the general public here in the US, maybe Australia, maybe the UK, I don't know. But Russia v. Ukraine, I'm just labeling this a winter of terrible discontent. Your thoughts? Yes, it's uh, you know, not getting any better. The, the problem with this, of course, and, and even though one you know, should never, it would be um, you know, distasteful to say that one, uh, you know, wants one side to do better than the other, to lose or whatnot, to win and so on. But what's happened with the narrative recently in the conflict is that the, the Ukrainian um, forces have been doing well and the Russians have been in retreat in the battlefield. But the focus now is on, of course, other methods. And so what the um, response has been from the Russian military and air force has been to focus on the energy grid, um, electricity and water and so forth. The idea, of course, is that if you cripple the system, I think over 50% of the 
energy infrastructure in Ukraine has been damaged or destroyed. This, of course, um, is timed to, for a winter that will has potentially horrendous consequences. You know, millions of people at, at risk of not having sufficient heating um, and uh, amenities to cope with this. And the World Health Organization has certainly um, expressed alarm at this um, situation. Because remember, uh, we're not just talking about uh, the basic needs of heating and so on. We're talking about operating hospital facilities, you know, incubators, blood banks, uh, you know, operations, you know, the whole range of things requiring electricity. So all of this is very troubling. But the narrative is that of um, Ukrainian victory. And this is something the U.S. is supporting, this is something the U.K. and some European states are supporting. And this could be very dangerous as well, because this means that it's pushing the conflict to an even further point where we have to see then what the Russians uh, do. And then that's always a very concerning thing. In your learned opinion, Benoit, could the UN get involved? Is it possible? Well, the UN has made a, a modest contribution so far when you consider, for example, uh, brokering the, uh, the deal to release Ukrainian grain uh, via the Black Sea. So that's something that certainly uh, Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, did play a significant part in. Uh, he was certainly one of the important parties. So the UN can certainly play some role, but ultimately the issue is that both Ukraine and Russia have to get to the negotiation table, and this is not something that's been happening. In fact, uh, one of uh, a Kremlin spokesmen made the remarks that this uh, escalation in the targeting of uh, infrastructure targets in Ukraine has been premised on the fact that Ukraine just refuses to talk to Russian officials about uh, the status of Luhansk, Donetsk, and, and so forth, and what resolution can be made. But it's it's one of those realities that eventually these people have to get to the negotiation table and make some very, very terrible decisions about uh, territory, about control, and about these things. And the, you know, but because of the successes of Ukraine recently, there is a, a confidence now that. Not only will they be able to retake um, the territories you know, and the independent, the so-called self-proclaimed independent areas, but might even focus on getting Crimea back. So there are a lot of these big picture things which are very, you know, of concern, shall we say? And we, we have to sort of see what happens. And let's not forget recently, you know, your listeners should also be reminded of the alarm that was caused by the missile that fell on Polish territory, resulting in the deaths of two unfortunate farmhands who were there at the time. Um, and the immediate reaction was, this is a Russian-made missile. And the immediate reaction, therefore, is, good Lord, will NATO come in? But thankfully, sane heads prevailed. The NATO secretary um, said that uh, this was most likely an accident. It was actually a Ukrainian missile that had been intercepted by a Russian missile and then you know um, went off course. Um, and uh, there was no evidence. The Polish uh, prime minister also said the same thing. But it was interesting to note that the Ukrainians were very enthusiastic, as it were, if you, if you want to use that term, to insist that it was a Russian-provoked attack. So or you can see how dangerous these things can be and how much of a risk of a broader conflict we are dealing with that, con with that situation. Yes, and I guess what well, we can't just sort of go, okay, it's just going to go on. I mean, we well, we can say that, but we've got to be sort of very aware of this thing could escalate and we could see the UN getting involved, America, the UK. Talking about the UK, let's talk about the new prime minister, a name I don't think is very familiar here in the US of A, and I also don't think is very familiar in the UK. Rishi Sunak, is that what the UK needs right now? Rishi Sunak? Well, in, in a sense, they have, didn't have much of a choice. <laughs> what, what happened uh, in the disaster of uh, trustonomics, namely the economic policy of the very short-lived, one of the shortest-lived prime ministers ever, Liz Truss. Yes. In fact, she does have the record now, um, I think 45 days, something like that. Um, and she managed in a very short time to tank the pound attack the economy more generally and actually frighten the bond market. So it's quite astonishing. Um, and 
you have to remember that the Conservative Party, the Tories, had um, an election within their ranks to pick the prime minister who would succeed Boris Johnson. So it went to a very small group of uh, individual voters, the yes. so-called selectorate, as they were termed. And uh, Sunak actually missed out because uh, he came across as being perhaps a bit too elitist, a bit too, you know, and also let's face it, there were suggestions, you know, that perhaps he wasn't quite uh, the suitable white bread trust type. So certainly in the broader conservative appeal, this is beyond the limited party membership that was responsible for um, electing trust initially. Um, you know, they they wanted a, a traditionalist, almost a you know yes, a, yes. A, a Thatcherite type figure. Right. Um, yeah. But what is interesting to note, I, I just want to point out that Sunak is, in terms of his background, you know, he is an immigrant, you know, in, uh, originally um, an Indian, going through via um, African roots. In fact, you know that traditional yes. Indian diaspora in Africa, but but also um, incredibly wealthy. I mean, the man, you know, uh, along with his wife, has more cash, more money than. The King of England. Um, so it's very striking to just to keep that in mind. He's essentially a bored banker who wanted to enter politics. That's really yeah. what he ended up becoming. Isn't his, um, wife, isn't his wife more more wealthy than he is? I think I read that. Yes, by virtue, it's it's because of Indian connections. You know, there was um, you know most of it is her father's money anyway. <laughs> so I, I I love the way that I know you've got something else to say, but I I love the way that you. Uh, in there more wealthy than the King of England because I think a lot of people have still forgotten that there is a King of England right now and that leads me to ask the question only I'm not really expecting an answer but how rich is the King of England that's what I'd like to know but that's, that's a well, question for another, for another time yeah, well, really. well I can tell you that certainly on figures you know, people it really depends on how you assess it and a lot of it of course was based on when when Charles the, when the King was the, the Prince of the Prince of Wales, and he turned the the Duchy of Cornwall into a, a, an enormous mon money making enterprise, and uh, and in a multi million um, uh, dollar uh, pound actually enterprise. So, in terms of equivalent, given the fact that he's gotten, of course, the inheritance from his mother, and combined with the assets uh, distributed through the kingdom, you know, we're talking about uh, well, it's it's under, you know. If you take Sunak's uh, um, background in terms of uh, assets, which of course it's a bit of speculation, it's 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 he's essentially just shy of being a billionaire, whereas uh, uh, the king now is just um, you know sort of like nine hundred million dollars worth, something like that. Yes, except except I've always thought this. Except I'm sure they have money and jewels and gold bullion or whatever stored away somewhere. I've always had this sort of fanciful idea that's what the royal family has well yeah, well it's 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 not fanciful at all it's precisely the point it's um these tangible assets uh, for example paintings the royal collection yes. uh, which is hugely valuable and of course uh, such diamonds as the Kohinoor and so forth so right. yes, <laughs> yes I mean, let's not forget that so we're talking about a huge amount of wealth so that's what we're talking about when we're trying to assess the assets of yeah of the royal family it's hard to gauge exactly what it is because they will never tell you of course yes. uh, but but it's interesting and remember they don't pay tax on these things too you know in many instances so that's I that's a huge advantage that. yes. Mm. yes i did sort of slightly swerve you off course there were you was there something else you were going to add about rishi sunak otherwise we'll go on to our next topic Yes, no, I think the only thing I just wanted to finish up with Sunak is that uh, he's got a huge problem with his own party because uh, it, it is a poison chalice being not just prime minister, but being a Tory prime minister at the moment um, because the the party itself is terrified about the next election that will be wiped out given current, you know, the polling at the moment. And he's also got, a, of course, a very rabid Brexit wing in uh, the Tory party. You know, and even recently he tried to propose a Swiss-style uh, approach economically to the European Union by which trade barriers would be removed in the manner that it is for Switzerland right. and so on. But that was scotched very, in fact, just yesterday, um, He largely because the Brexiteers were starting to worry that, oh, goodness, maybe remove, if this is the kind of arrangement, we'll still end up getting ambushed and entangled in Europe. So you see, that's going to be an ongoing problem. And Britain has to accept the reality that its biggest market is not outside Europe. It is in Europe. And that's the big problem. And that's the yeah. big problem they face. Yeah. Yes. Well said. Thank you. Okay. To Twitter.
What are we missing in the conundrum of Elon Musk's, and I'm calling it the Twitter party because it just seems kind of, I'm not sure you can take it all so seriously, or can you? What in the world is going on? Should we be even talking about it? Should we be concerned? What, what What's happening there, Benoit? Yes, it's an interesting point you raised, Norman, about whether we should take it seriously. First of all, I think to a large extent, Twitter should never be taken too seriously. But it has been by virtue of uh, its its impact insofar as it makes a lot of noise. It, it is the drama, the dramatist's uh, online platform. You know, people go on to vent, people go on to start arguments with limited means and of limited consequences. You know, essentially, one tweet you know, causes hysteria only to then vanish. People forget about it, awaiting the next drama. And Musk is is sort of playing up on this, of course, constantly. You know, he's you know, he certainly, um, you know, he himself made a drama out of it, you know, having initially wanting to buy it, then not wanting to buy it, and then eventually then purchasing it for $44 billion. Uh, um, so he's already got that issue there. And then, of course, promising to make dramatic changes, um, you know, freedom of speech and range and things like that. But the, the thing that, of course, he's been in the news a lot of late is that, and, and you, you shouldn't divorce his issues with Twitter from the broader tech space, you know, in terms of what's happening, because big tech has been shedding jobs at the rate of thousands. You know, yes. we've got Meta, we've got Amazon, we've got the collapse of the cryptocurrency company FTX. We've got, um, you know, a whole range of these uh, challenges that have happened. So it's sort of like the post-pandemic squeeze where, you know, these huge companies that made a lot in the course of the pandemic are now cutting back dramatically. But, um, Musk's problem here, if you want to call it that, is that he's using a very uh, bold, bullying style of management to get what he wants. You know, so he's issued an ultimatum to his employees to essentially, you know, that they need to sign this, you know, understanding that they work high intensity and long hours to quote what it says, and if they don't, they can get out. And so that's why over the weekend there was a lockout of staff. So having initially told staff to go back into work uh, and abandon remote working practices, he then locks them out. So there's a lot of uh, drama going on here. And uh, people are wondering, of course, where this goes. But I would suggest that uh, it's just going to be a more trim, uh, streamlined operation. You know, he's already shed thousands and many people are threatening to leave the company. But I, I don't take this call seriously from individuals who use Twitter who say they're getting off it. That, that's right. just a posturing act. It's histrionics. So yes. I don't take that too seriously. Yeah, got you. I'm with you on that one. One question for you about this. And me with my skeptical mind, I'm just curious to know what you think about the price that he supposedly paid $44 billion. Was that the real price? Or, or, or are we just being led astray on this one? Well, it'll be interesting because it, it, we have to remember that others forked into the amount too. It's not him necessarily personally doing it. He's got right. investment yes. from others. So, uh, and, and they would be also the ones deeply unhappy if, if they don't get some kind of return. I mean, he has to now, yeah. you know, whether it's accurate or not, to what's the value, actual value. I think we just have to acknowledge the fact that he needs to find a way to get revenue into the company. And that's his big challenge. Twitter has always been badly run. It's been a very strange company from the outset. And I think yes. uh, people tend to forget that Musk's arrival is simply just part of a pattern of, uh, of the management that was already poor to begin with, you know, with its culture and its, you know, the challenges of trying to generate revenue. And he, he needs to turn it around. He needs to make money to get some return or you know, we'll, we'll see him probably having to part ways from it. Yes. You know, I've spoken to a number of people in the last few days since Musk took over. And the, the same thing has come up. People have said to me, oh, I got off of Twitter some time ago. I just thought it was just this was before Musk. And now now Musk has taken over. People are now that, you know, as you say, they're posturing. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of curious to see what happens. I'm, what I am curious to see if there will be some other new inventive social media platforms. And that seems to me I've come across a couple in the last the last couple of days. And I'm just wondering whether that's that is the future that we will see this sort of breakdown of the monopoly that Twitter and Facebook and all these other platforms have. 
I think it's certainly a very fair statement, and it's it's already it's bound to happen. There's already been an interest uh, sparked in other you know alternative yeah. uh, social media platforms. It's just that people have been so you know happily connected with um, a platform that's very easy to use, and Twitter, you know, relative to its rivals at the moment, it's just very easy to use, um, and, and it's it's so connected with you know, this confessional culture, as I like to call it, you know, where people have a gripe and they just they just have to vent. They just have to, you know, uh, tweet an effusion about something that's not particularly profound, um, but somehow gets out there and causes a stir, you know, and Twitter in that sense is very good for that. It is a lot of compressed hot air that and a lot of echo chamber musings, you know, rather than actually significant change happening. And from that perspective, it is really a case of drama more than substance. Got it. Totally agree with you, 100%. Okay, you may have noticed, Benoit, that I have not mentioned the word Trump or running for president or any of that nonsense. I think we should just leave that to one side and the latest, you know, Merrick Garland's, whatever. I, I want to put that to one side. We can come back to that at another time, see what happens. But there is something that I do want to finish on, and that is, Something that I'm following and, and, and enthusiastically, and but I'm not sure all my neighbors are because it just doesn't seem to be that soccer is still such a big sport in America. But the rest of the world is following the World Cup in Qatar. What should we know about what's going on over there? I've got one, one other question follow up on that. But what should we know about what's going on with the World Cup? Well, I think it's worth noting that it's probably one of the most controversial World Cups to have happened in, in decades. Uh, this particular World Cup was um, enshrouded in controversy from the start. That's the first thing. So, you know, the fact that Qatar wanted um, to begin with and there was, uh, you know, there were findings that the award was actually inappropriate. It was marred by corruption. It was marred by bribery, um, you know, and a range of things associated with that. Qatar, you know, was simply one of the last countries you could imagine, you know, a desert culture with no facilities having, <laughs> you know, having to essentially create stadia from scratch uh, to host the tournament. So, and remember, you know, other things have come, have been also brought to light, the uh, appalling labor conditions yes. by which um, a Guardian article last year um, of came up with a figure that 6,500 workers you know, through conditions have perished. Uh, we're talking about a very large, of course, uh, uh, m migrant worker base, uh, individuals from the Philippines, from Bangladesh, um, Pakistan, um, and you, you name it, a number of countries. And their conditions have been really affected by the so-called kafala system, which is like a system of indentured labor, right. which restricts which restricts the movement of labor laborers. Uh, you know, passports have to be surrendered. Um, there's a lot of there's no privacy to speak of. So, and then of course there are issues about uh, discrimination against minorities, you know, LGBT communities, and yeah, but also against women and so on. So there is this. The, that that was the backdrop. But what has been interesting is that just in the last two days, we've already seen that a lot of chat is not even about the football, but about the protests. You yes. know, what would the what would the players do? You know, would England, for example, turn up with this, with a band, you know, on its um, you know, with armbands uh, supposedly, uh, in, you know, celebrating. LGBT and solidarity and so on, but they were told explicitly by FIFA if they did that, they would all get yellow cards. Uh, so FIFA crushed that, and that just showed the extent of how willing these people, when I say these people, I mean players, are uh, yes. protesting. And I've, I've, I've written elsewhere that I call this form of protest when people wear armbands but still turn up to play as a form of camouflage protest it's not genuine protest you're just camouflaging it yes. you still play you still turn up to the tournament you don't boycott it you still play you still break bread with the hosts you don't particularly like um, but you express of course your concern about the local situation so there's a lot of that at this world cup but then there is the protest with the iranian players uh, did you see this today? I think it was today, or was it yesterday? I don't know. I'm. I'm well, it was overnight. It was certainly yes. It was uh, certainly today. Certainly your time and and, and yeah. early mornings here. Yes. Early yes. morning in Australian time. So yes. So what? Well, you know, they're, they're in a terrible situation where, of course, uh, some of their fans were very much wanting them to make a protest. So their modest gesture to this was just not to sing the national anthem when it was played. Um, 
but but of course, you know, you have this strange spectacle where you've got the the English uh, players being told, okay, we'll pro- you are permitted to protest, but you must use the FIFA armband <laughs> if you want to protest. So you you must use the institution's approved band, and then you have the Iranian players, of course, you know, with the with the very costly. Um, the losses taking place amongst protesters you know, recently uh, in Iran, the crackdown on protests. Uh, and in fact, many Iranian spectators were delighted that England thrashed their team 6-2, I think, six goals to two, uh, largely because, uh, well, they don't necessarily want to see the Iranian team you know, progress too far either, which is a sad state of affairs. So I, I do feel for those members of the team because they don't, they're not hiding nothing, really. Yes, and and there's a video I, I, which has gone viral, I guess, of the of the Iranian team standing there stony faced as the national anthem is playing, and they're just not participating. It's it's quite it's quite unique, and it's it's it's. I want to talk to you more at another time about what's going on in Iran about the protests. But one thing I have to add into this talking about soccer, the World Cup. Was it you that I read, somebody I read that said that the World Cup team, I mean, the English team at the World Cup, forgot that England now has a king rather than a queen when they sang the national anthem? Oh, yes, yes. I, I, I didn't uh, write about that specific thing, but I certainly noted that too. Yes, that that's, uh, it, it just hasn't sunk in. Uh, even in England, it certainly hasn't sunk in. I've noticed that too. <laughs> There've been yeah, yeah, yeah. some very public uh, for, forgetfulness about who's actually, you know, who's the actual monarch now. <laughs> Yes, that's right. As always, Benoit, it is. I, I love talking to you. Now, I love your take on everything. You know that. I have been talking to senior lecturer at RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. Benoit writes for Counterpunch and various other magazines. And really, I, I highly advise. I'll have the link up to Counterpunch on the site. Go there and read some of the things that uh, the Benoit says. He's also, I, I'm, I'm very honoured to say, a frequent contributor. To life elsewhere. Benoit, thank you so very much for getting up early your time. It's late my time. I'm going to have dinner now. So thank you so much for joining us at Life Elsewhere. It's a pleasure, Norman. Anytime, anytime. The link to Counterpunch is up at lifeelsewhere.co. Make sure you go there to keep up with all the shows we produce. Next up, it's not exactly a nice, charming word, but Robin Chuckins says your gut is a beautiful thing. We love to hear what you have to say. Write to this address, info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. My guest is Robin Chutkin, MD, and she's the author of a previous book, Gut Bliss. Her latest book is titled the antiviral gut, tackling pathogens from the inside out. Robin, welcome to Life Elsewhere. Thanks so much for having me, Norman. Okay, I have to, uh, well, I'm not going to ask you, I'm going to tell you. When I see the word gut, I'm almost a little squeamish. I'm a little sort of like afraid of that word. It just seems such a I, I guess maybe it's my upbringing or something, but it just seems like such a, a horrible word. But after you're reading your book, I don't think it really is that horrible after all. But have you ever, have you had people say to you, gut is kind of like a little disturbing? I have. I've had a lot of people say that they have a bit of a visceral reaction to it, yeah. like what you're having, Norman. And I have to say... As a gastroenterologist, the gut is beautiful. I spend a lot of my time inside the gut and you see in the small intestine, those finger-like villus projections and the large intestine and the peristaltic movements. It, it's a glorious thing. And I don't think the word gut does it justice. So I agree <laughs> with you. It's a bit of a, it's a bit of a common word for such an uncommon and beautiful organ. Where does it come from? You know, I looked it up and I'm, I'm wondering if you have... Um, a sort of a background to the way the word does it come from latin originally i think it does i mean if you think yeah. of words like guttural meaning sort yes. of coming from inside i think that's what it means i mean we know viscera the the word when we say visceral really literally yeah. means our insides and i think gut yes. is a close cousin of that 
Okay, so we've got that cleared up. So let me let me ask you about what you mean. And I, I know your book explains it, but I'm just going to get right up front here and ask you the antiviral gut. Now, that's quite a big, powerful statement. What do you mean by that? Well, Norman, people are used to thinking of the gut as a digestive organ. We all know that digestion happens in the gut. But I think for most people, the idea of the gut as a defensive organ is a new idea. People don't think of the gut as something that's there to protect you from pathogens, but it really is in all kinds of ways. And they're all in the book, but I'll give you three really sort of big examples. Yes. Stomach acid, which we know is made in the gut, is a big part of digestion. It helps to provide the optimal pH for the nutrients to be assimilated, the enzymes to work, et cetera. But stomach acid is also one of our body's most important defenses because what it does in the case of viruses is it unravels and denatures viral protein when you ingest a virus, which is the way it gets into our body a lot of the time. And it renders a virus inactive. So stomach acid protects against viruses and other pathogens, against foodborne illnesses, against traveler's diarrhea, et cetera. So that's one huge defense. Another big defense is the gut lining. The gut lining is thin. It's one cell thick, but it is what protects us from the outside world that we swallow every day. And it protects our insides, our innards. And then, of course, you have the gut microbiome, the trillions of bacteria that live in the gut that are also involved in defending us from pathogens. There's a lot to unpack there, and you explained it very well, and I appreciate that. I want to start with my questions about the book with one word, weight, because you talk about this in your book, and it's something which I I don't think I have a problem with weight, but I know that lots and lots of people do, and you talk about this in your book, and I'd just like to, to get from you, Robin, why weight is so important, particularly in terms of how we deal with our gut. Weight is a a heavy issue, no pun intended there, (laughs) because as you said, Norman, so many people struggle with their weight. I mean, the numbers vary depending on what study you look at, but somewhere around two thirds of the population in the US and other developed countries, two thirds of the population are overweight or obese. And we know that weight can be something that's socially stigmatizing and challenging for people to think about, to talk about. But I think it's really important to discuss it as an increased factor in viral susceptibility because it very much is adipose tissue, fatty tissue, is immunologically active. And it's active, unfortunately, in a way that hinders rather than helps us. In addition, when somebody is overweight or has obesity, what that can mean is that their lungs are restricted by the increased weight, and so they can't mechanically ventilate their lungs as well. So you can start to imagine now that when somebody has a respiratory disorder or a respiratory infection and they can't ventilate the lungs well, they're going to be at risk for a poor outcome in terms of the respiratory system. So the combination of immune activity of fatty tissue, as well as some of the mechanical issues. We know that hormonally, people who have obesity or significantly overweight also tend to clot more with their blood that can lead to complications of clotting, etc. So there are a lot of different ways that obesity can increase morbidity and mortality. And, And one of the most tragic ways, Norman, is because of that stigma, because people who are struggling with their weight are often embarrassed and ashamed to go in and seek medical care. And sometimes they can delay care for longer. But we know that in virtually every sort of respiratory epidemic and pandemic that we've had, we've seen it with the Hong Kong flu, with the Spanish flu, and now with SARS-CoV-2, that being significantly overweight or obese is an increased risk factor. And in one study of about half a million people, it led to a much higher mortality, 113% as a risk factor, risk factor for being hospitalized, for being on a ventilator, and unfortunately for dying. I'm I'm so glad you linked it to, to COVID and SARS, because this is where it comes up in your book. You're talking about the pandemic, and, and you go into great detail. And I'm, I'm going off tangent just slightly, but it's sort of, I think you'll understand when I say, do we know why some people are prone to being overweight, where some people just they become obese. 
because we know that it's bad uh, eating and diet and all the rest of it, we understand that. But why do some people, and because you talk about, we're going to get to that in a minute, about taking care of yourself and diet. But do we know why some people are more prone to, to just a bad diet? Sure, we do have some information there. We know that some of body weight distribution, for example, is genetically linked, whether you're an apple shape and you tend to have a lot of belly fat and visceral central obesity versus you're a pear and you tend to have a flatter midsection, but heavier hips and legs and so on. So yeah. that, uh, that a lot of that is genetically determined the body type. But when yes. we think about weight itself, we know that the microbiome, this, you know, enormous collection of microbes that live in and on our body does play a role. So for example, we can have two people with varying microbiomes and we can give them the exact same food, the same amount of nutrients, calories, et cetera, the exact meal, and one will be able to extract more calories from it than the other. We know that the microbes themselves can change our palate, can themselves metabolize and utilize calories, can slow down or speed up transit to the GI tract. So that composition of the microbiome can affect what happens to the calories once they're in our body, as well as sending us out in pursuit of different calories. If you have certain composition of your microbiome, you're going to seek more sugary, starchy, starchy foods versus high fat versus perhaps more savory. So the microbes themselves can also inform what our food choices and our food cravings are. Yes, yes. I again, I, I don't. I, I want to get to that in a minute about food choices because there's important parts of your book that I that I, I thoroughly enjoyed and want to talk about. But thank you for that explanation. I what I want to do now is is talk about some of the pages that I've marked in your book because you've broken it down into chapters and you give us lots of information about how we can deal with the antiviral gut. Just let me remind my listeners, I'm talking to Robin Chutkin. Her new book is called The Antiviral Gut, Tackling Pathogens from the Inside Out. I, I kind of like that uh, subtitle there. Let's talk about the antiviral gut diet. So this is because we're, we were talking about diet. So let's talk about that. And, and, and you go into great, and once again, you go into to great detail. And there's a one subheading here, eliminate frankenfoods. Can you talk about eliminating frankenfoods? Frankenfoods are foods that, simply put, your grandmother would not have recognized as food. Foods yes. with a lot of emulsifiers, fillers, additives, things that are designed to either change the consistency of the food, change the flavor of the food, or enhance the shelf life, or more commonly, all three. And we have a lot of data now. I mean, you've probably noticed, Norman, that every week there's a new study out about these ultra-processed foods yes. and how they can increase chronic conditions. They can lead to increase in cancer. We have a study just from a week ago, a study from Brazil that showed that these ultra-processed foods are linked to a 10.5% increased risk of premature death in wow. Brazil. And that's a country where they're eating... Um, less ultra-processed food in general as a percentage of their diet than we are in the U.S., North America, the U.K., et cetera, where typically these ultra-processed foods are about 50% of the diet. And so, you know, we know that these foods are profoundly affecting the gut lining, the health of the gut microbiome, et cetera, and they're handicapping our gut's ability to defend us and also leading to an increased risk of some of these diseases. You know, you, this now touches on to this whole idea of what we consider to be food and healthy food and, and what people take for granted as food and eat every day. Personally, I have, I think I've had McDonald's once in my life. I've not been to any other fast food places and, and it's out of choice. And it's also because of my upbringing when I was growing up, fast food if there was such a thing, and it really wasn't fast, was fish and chips or going to a, a kebab house and, and getting kebabs. But fast food, as we know it in America, or the rest of the world now, for that matter, I didn't grow up with, which I guess dates me, of course. But So I've not gotten used to eating that kind of food and never think of it. And I know every single day I pass by fast food places 
so do other people, but they consider that to be to be a food, to be their meal. So my question to you, Robin, is is that because of marketing or is it because people are just lazy? What, what, what can you have you have you with your antiviral gut book, have you thought about why do people eat that rubbish? Yeah, I thought a lot about it. And like you, Norman, we were chatting at the beginning of this yeah. interview. I'm also a member of the Commonwealth and the same thing. I was brought up in Jamaica and I remember distinctly when the first fast food yeah. place opened, it was a Kentucky fried chicken. And we, you yes. know, like maybe once a year as a special treat, um, yeah. you know, we got Kentucky fried chicken. So there are a couple things. A few years ago, I had the pleasure of attending a conference where Alice Waters spoke, who, ah, as yes. you know, is an yeah. incredible restaurateur, etc. And Alice Waters spoke about the phenomena of slow food versus fast food. And I think a lot as a physician about slow medicine versus fast medicine. Yeah. Fast medicine is a pill for every ill. You have a symptom and, you know, here's a pill immediately without much thought to what the root cause is. Where is the symptom coming from? You know, if you have a headache, is it maybe because you're dehydrated or you're sleep deprived or what is it? Yeah. So instead, you know, here's a, an ibuprofen for your headache. And when you think about fast food, fast food is always accessible. It's readily accessible. It sort of quenches our thirst for something salty or sugary or, you know, so it indulges that drive that we have, that somewhat evolutionary drive for sugar, salt, fat, et cetera. But it's not quality. So it actually leaves us hungry for more. Yes. And she talked about that. And I thought there were so many parallels between that and it's this idea of of healthcare, of the kind of care that's on demand and it's available all the time whenever you want it, but it may not be that good. And it may just as a fast food leaves you hungry for more because it's a it's a sating of an immediate urge, but it's not really fulfilling your nutrient requirements. The same thing with fast medicine. I mean, you might take a pill, but it's not solving the problem. It's a band-aid. Yeah. So just yes. as fast food is a band-aid for our hunger, fast medicine is a band-aid for what ails us. And, you know, the problem with these foods, again, is that not only do they have these substances in them that belong in the chemistry lab that we're now ingesting, but they displace more nutrient-rich food from our plates. And I think a lot of these foods are engineered to make us want more. They are engineered to appeal to certain aspects of our taste and our palate, whether it's salt or sugar, et cetera. And we also don't, we're not really satisfied from a nutrient point of view when we eat them. So it makes us want to eat more because yes. our bodies are like, okay, well, you've, you know, you've had a giant bag of potato chips, but you haven't really given me any significant nutrients that I can use. So you need to go out and eat more and more and more. But I think it also very much speaks to the way we're living, where we're busy all the time and procuring food and preparing food and even ingesting food has become something that we do on the fly and a matter more of convenience than of quality. Yes. Under the antiviral gut diets, you talk about green light foods, green light baking, green lights, yellow light foods, excuse me, red light foods. And you talk about that with beverages as well. I We don't have enough time to go through the list. But I love the way you've laid this out because it really made, I think anybody that is, is going to be sort of in, I, I, excited by this because he goes, oh, yeah, vegetables, of course, they're good for you. But then you get some green light baking, almond flour, coconut flour, and yellow light foods, wild caught fish. Yeah, good. Wild game. Grease fed beef. I don't eat beef, but red light foods, sugar, artificial sweeteners, high fructose corn syrup. Yes. And I like it the way you've laid this out. I want to now turn to maintaining your stomach acid under securing defenses. This chapter is really interesting. Can you just give us a little overview of, of maintaining your stomach acid? Sure, Norman. You know, one of the main motivations for writing this book was realizing in 2020, a few months into the pandemic, that there was a lot of information that people didn't have. And one big example was this issue of stomach acid. In July 2020, there was a large population-based study that was published looking at about 53,000 patients. And they asked a simple question, does taking an acid-blocking drug, now a specific type of drug, a proton pump inhibitor, the kind that completely shuts off the acid pump. So we're not talking about an antacid here. 
Hold on one but, second. Because sure. hold on one second. Because Robin, anti, say that for me again, so everybody can hear it. Anti anti acid blocking pump. Proton pump inhibitors. So when Proton we talk about inhibitors. acid okay. blockade. There are drugs that you take on demand if you're having heartburn, like an antacid or an H2 blocker. And they're the class of drugs called the proton pump inhibitors or PPIs. Ah. And you may know those as a little purple pill. Nexium is one. Prilosec, Asifex, Protonix, Prevacid. There are a lot of different ones on the market. Okay. Those drugs are amongst the most commonly prescribed drugs in the world. Why? Because they really work. They completely shut off acid production in the stomach. And so what that means is if you're somebody who is eating late at night, who's maybe overfilling your stomach, you can do all of that and you're not going to have acidic contents coming up into your stomach and you're not going to have symptoms. But it's important to keep in mind, and this is sort of another conversation, that those symptoms of acid reflux are meant to serve a purpose. They're there to remind you that overfilling your stomach at 10 o'clock at night is not a great idea. But to get back to the drugs... There was a study that came out in July 2020, and it asked a simple question, does blocking stomach acid increase the risk of COVID? And the answer was a resounding yes. If you were taking one of these drugs daily, you had double the likelihood of testing positive for COVID. And if you were taking these drugs twice a day, which many people do, the risk was three to fourfold. Now, as a gastroenterologist, that didn't surprise me because we know that people taking these drugs are at increased risk for viral infections, for bacterial infections, for parasitic infections. We've seen that for years, but it was striking that the risk was that high. So, Norman, I remember asking my husband, who's not in the medical field, he's in the cybersecurity, counterterrorism, counterintelligence field. I'll have to shoot you to tell you more. Of course. I asked him, <laughs> I said, honey, you know that taking a proton pump inhibitor increases your risk for COVID, right? And he looked at me and he goes, no, I didn't know that. Like, how would I know that? And I said, well, because when you don't have stomach acid, then you lose the ability to kill the virus with the stomach acid, to inactivate it. And then he said, okay, that makes sense. But no, I didn't know that. So then I asked a couple of my other medical colleagues, a friend who was a dermatologist, and she also was sort of like, oh, really? And she's like, oh, my husband is on that drug. No, I didn't know that. And then Norman, I asked my GI colleagues. And of course, they, you know, the minute you sort of explained it to them again, they were like, oh, yeah, we get it. Yeah. But it was it was sort of startling to me that even my highly specialized medical colleagues weren't aware of that connection. So then I thought, well, the average person who doesn't have a medical degree probably isn't aware either. And then we had another big landmark study a few months later that came out that said that the composition of the gut microbiome is the most accurate predictor of outcome from SARS-CoV-2. It's more accurate than looking at age, gender, comorbidities, even inflammatory markers that we can test for in the blood, like the C-reactive protein, the sedimentation rate. The composition of the microbiome was more predictive in terms of determining who was going to end up on a ventilator with acute respiratory distress syndrome, who could die from this virus. And that's when I said, okay, so people really need to know that the gut is not only a major defensive organ, but is also very predictive, the health of the gut for outcomes with COVID. And so I really felt like from a public health point of view, people needed to know. And so again, to get back to stomach acid, we have about 100 times more ACE2 receptors, the receptors that bind the virus, SARS-CoV-2, in our GI tract compared to our lungs. The portal of entry for many people is through the mouth. They ingest it. Yes. Again, if you don't have sufficient levels of stomach acid because you've blocked it with one of these drugs, you are two to four times more likely for that virus to end up being able to infect an intestinal cell and get into your body. Versus if you have intact stomach acid levels and the acid will denature and unravel the viral protein, rendering it inactive. And this is why so many people, Norman, with this pandemic have had GI symptoms. I mean, from the early studies from Wuhan, we see that almost 50% of people had GI symptoms with the virus. Wow. I, I love this because you just taught me and my listeners something which I had no idea about. But that is my that is something we can really sort of take note of. My guest is Robin Chutkin. Her book is called The Antiviral Gut, Tackling Pathogens from the Inside Out. 
chapter 10 very quickly, de-stress yourself. Now, the reason I'm focusing on this one, I was having lunch yesterday on Sunday with a friend of mine, and, and she talks about stress. She talks about how much she's always under stress. And we were talking about how to, you know, how do you de-stress? And I, I, and I and I showed her your book, and I said, look, you need to read this, de-stress yourself. Robin, can you de-stress yourself? You absolutely can, Norman. You may not be able to change a stressful situation, but there's a lot you can do to change your response to it. Dr. Herbert Benson was a Harvard cardiologist, and decades ago, he wrote a tiny little book called The Relaxation Response. And Norman, he was literally sort of blacklisted from the medical community because at the time he was talking about lowering blood pressure and decreasing heart rate and improving cardiovascular status through these basic techniques of deep breathing, et cetera. And people thought this was hocus pocus. Yes. Well, the book has sold millions of copies over the years. And Herbert Benson is actually credited as the person who really brought this whole idea of mindfulness and stress reduction into the medical community and linked it clearly to the ability to decrease comorbidities with a lot of these diseases. We know, for example, from a study done at University of North Carolina, when they looked at men with HIV, men who reported this sort of chronic stress without a mindfulness-based approach to mitigating the stress, their HIV progressed four times faster. We see that chronic stress and anxiety have been a risk factor for worse outcome in practically every study that has looked large-scale at COVID. So we know that what exists, what we think exists just in our mind in terms of stress very much exists in our body. It literally sabotages our immune system, the ability of our T cells and B cells to fight infection. And it can also increase the levels of harmful bacteria in the gut. Do we also see this with cancer diagnosis? Yes, we see this is absolutely true for cancer. So also, we know that uh, chronic stress, as well as what's going on in the microbiome, we know that an unhealthy gut is likely to lead to more rapid cancer progression and uh, less robust outcome in terms of cancer chemotherapy. So these things are really critical. One area of your book that I really want to get into, and that is recipes. They're not your recipes, um, but... I love the fact that I'm having recipe because I love cooking. And there's one recipe in particular, chocolate orange mousse. Now, when you say yes. mousse, ah, the first ingredient, two ripe avocados. Who would have thunk it? Two ripe avocados. For That's right. I'm mousse. about to post this recipe for Thanksgiving. So I'm glad you like it. I have to give a shout out to my friend, Elise Musellis. She's done the recipes for... I've written four books. This is a fourth. The third one didn't have recipes, but she's done recipes for the first two and this one. And here's the thing, Norman. I love to cook also, but I'm not a great cook and I'm not great at following recipes. And one Ah. could argue that number two could follow from number one. If you're not good at following recipes, you might not always turn out great. So the the bar for these recipes is very low in terms of making sure they are very simple, easy to follow, not a ton of ingredients, simple things. And yes, you can have a delicious treat like a chocolate orange mousse using primarily avocado, raw cacao, things that are extraordinarily good for you. Robin, is there one food, and this is, I'm putting you on the spot here a little bit, I think, but is there one food that you think is essential for an antiviral gut? I have to say two, Norman, and that's beans and greens, legumes, Yes, which are, you know, we think about foods as microbiota accessible carbohydrates, max. And these are the foods that really feed our gut microbes, because that's who we need to be feeding, not just ourselves, but our microbes. And beans and green leafy vegetables really do that fantastically well. Robin Chutkin, MD has been my guest. Her book is titled The Antiviral Gut, Tackling Pathogens from the Inside Out. This has been fun. I enjoyed talking to you. Oh, I loved being on your show. Thank you so much. Thank you to my guests and a very large thank you to you for listening. My email address comes up in a moment, so make sure you jot it down and send me a question or two. Till next time, be well, be safe, and as always, be nice. Bye-bye.
You have been listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind the scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. Thank you.